Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. If I were ever tempted to become a deacon, just the thought of having to chant that gospel is enough to dissuade me. Thank you, Deacon, for that illuminating passage. You got to give it to the church. Uh, we not only don't skip over the passages that we're tempted to skip over if we're just reading the Bible, we actually elevate them to the proclamation of the gospel so that we have to uh, sit underneath it and let it work on us. And that's a lot of work. There are 39 begats that you just heard. That's a lot of begats. Um, the question, of course, is why in the world did we read this scripture? Have it proclaimed over us today on the Feast of St. Joachim, or Joachim, if you will. Uh, if you have Bibles with you, or even if you have them on your phone, it might not be a bad idea to pull up this passage. It's the very beginning of Matthew. It's chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In hearing the gospel like that, you get the sense of how many begots there are and, and how many names and what a scope of lineage this is. But it can get easy to get a little bogged down in it, to feel a little lost. But if you're looking at it in front of you in your Bible, there are some divisions in this passage that helps to sort of break it up and give it a little shape. So I want to focus on those divisions. And we get right from verse 1 what those divisions are. We hear that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so we begin with Abraham. He's the one who begins this whole lineage. The question is, why? Why Abraham? Why do we begin our lineage with Abraham? The answer, of course, comes from the story of the Bible, the story of the Old Testament. Beginning in Genesis, we read about Abraham called out of the land of Ur in order to follow God so that God could establish a new covenant with him. This covenant would be applied to all of the people who came after him in his lineage. And this covenant begins with him and extends then to his son and then to his grandson and then to all of the tribes of Israel that would come after him. That's why in the Old Testament, a lot of times you hear that uh, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was these three patriarchs who kicked off this lineage. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, etc., etc., and on we go. And so um, everyone in Jesus' day recognized their lineage. They knew where they had come from, and they still set their identity as being children of Abraham, children of this covenant promise that God gave to Abraham. And if you remember, that promise was that um, I will multiply your children and you shall be a father of many nations. So sons of Abraham, that's, that's what we hear about Jesus first, is that primarily he's a son of Abraham. The trouble with saying you're a son of Abraham as Jesus tells us in a couple of passages, is that it's not as simple as you think it is. If you're resting in your identity as a son of Abraham, well, you might not have the identity that you think you have. In 
the Gospel of John, Jesus was teaching in the temple. This was near his crucifixion. He was teaching in the temple, and some teachers and scribes and Pharisees came up to him and started arguing with him about things. And Jesus was saying, I'm just telling you what my father has given me to say. And they said, our father is Abraham. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. In essence, applying that you're in fact not Abraham's children. And in Matthew, he says something similar. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children of Abraham. So maybe there's something about being a child of Abraham that the children of Abraham at the time were missing. They didn't quite understand, and Jesus was here to tell them, actually, there's something different about being a child of Abraham that you don't quite grasp. And we'll get to what that is in just a second. But first, I also want to point out what the son of David means, because that's the second son that Jesus is in the beginning of this verse. He's the son of Abraham, and he's also a son of David. Maybe the son of David. What does that word, that title, son of David, mean? It's a phrase that people were familiar with. It was a shorthand to indicate something. Remember when the blind man on the side of the road heard that Jesus, this healer, was coming by, and he shouts out him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What was he saying? Jesus, son of David. There are other places where the people ask, could this be the son of David? So clearly they have something in mind. They're thinking about something. This title indicates something. What does it indicate? It indicates the fulfillment of what we know as the Davidic covenant. So we've heard about the Abrahamic covenant. There's also a Davidic covenant, a covenant that God made with David. And this comes from 2 Samuel 7, where Nathan is told by God to go and proclaim to David something. David is uh, worried about building a temple for God because God only has a tabernacle, the one that had been toted around for generations through the desert. And now that they've been established in the city of what would become called the city of David, Jerusalem, David is concerned, he's anxious that God doesn't have his own temple yet. And so he sets about planning to build this temple, but God sends the prophet Nathan to tell David, actually, you're not going to build my temple. Your son is going to build my temple, someone who comes from your loins, and that would be Solomon, David's son, by, as we heard, not his wife, Bathsheba. We don't hear her by name and uh, named as David's wife. We hear her named as she who was the wife of Uriah. Matthew is not sparing us the memory of this embarrassing detail that uh, David lusted after this woman, stole her away, sent her husband off to be killed in war intentionally, and uh, had a, uh, a child conceived of her in the midst of all that sin who did not survive. He's reminding us of that. Matthew's pulling no punches in this genealogy. He's letting us know that uh, what, I'm, <laughs> what I'm describing, how we got to where we are, was a road with a lot of sin involved, a lot of nastiness and messiness. So anyway, David does eventually have a son with this woman, Bathsheba. His name will be Solomon, and he will be the one to build the temple. But that's not the only part of the promise that God gives David through Nathan. He also promises that I will establish your throne so that not just your son, Solomon, but your lineage, your seed, 
will sit on this throne that I establish and will be named as yours. The throne of David becomes the name of the throne of Israel. And then eventually when Israel splits off from Judah and goes into captivity, then there's the kingdom of Judah. And they still have the, the, king, uh, the throne of David, but eventually they get captured by the Babylonians, shipped off, and everything's wrecked. But it can't be wrecked because God promised this would last forever, this throne of David. So when the people are now back in the land after the exile in the time of Jesus, there's this open question. Who will sit on the throne of David? Who's going to be this figure, this eventual son of David, who God promised will sit on the throne, secure Israel as a nation, and eventually rule all the other nations of the earth? That was the promise. That's what people came to expect. And so the, when they were throwing out the title son of David, that's the figure they were talking about. And so Matthew just tells it like it is. This is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He has not only the Abrahamic sonship to claim, but he has the Davidic one. And you know what that means. It means that he is the king that was promised. So those are two divisions that we see in this big lineage. And they're the two that are named in Matthew's first line. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But there's another division in this lineage too that doesn't involve uh, Jesus being a son of somebody. This is a little more, um, a little more tough to, to realize how Jesus relates to this particular division. But the division that I'm talking about is the division where you have the people in the land and then you have the people outside of the land. It's the exile to Babylon where the kingdom of Judah is ransacked by the Babylonians and all of the people are carted off. And this final division in the, the lineage is important for one big reason. It seems like it wasn't that big a deal because they, they were carted off, but then they eventually came back, right? But something changed. Something was different when they came back. It wasn't just that they had to rebuild walls or build up the temple again. There was something missing something crucial to the life of the people of the land. And that thing that was missing was the presence of God himself. In Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, we hear that the presence of God, in Hebrew, the Shekinah, what we call the Shekinah glory, the very presence, the glorious majesty of God, which rested between the wings of the cherubim over the ark in the Holy of Holies in the temple, Ezekiel saw that presence of God leave. And guess what? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that he came back. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament, with all the scriptures that uh, Jesus and, and his contemporaries would have been reading in the synagogues, they have Ezekiel. They have the vision where God's presence leaves the temple, but they don't have the picture of God coming back to the temple. Was God back in the temple or not? Well, there's not much you can do as, you know, the uh, Levitical priesthood other than just keep doing what you can do. You show up and you offer the sacrifices and you burn incense and you go in the Holy of Holies and you do everything you're told to do, but you don't have that guarantee that the presence of God, the presence that made Solomon and all the priests fall to their knees because it filled up the temple so magnificently when they first built it and dedicated it, the presence that Ezekiel saw in absurdly 
catastrophic language, leave the temple. Nothing that dramatic had happened since they came back. And so this event, the exile in Babylon, was a massive turning point in the life of the Jewish people, of all of Israel. Because they are now missing what makes them characteristically the life, the people of Israel, the Kahal Israel, the Kahal Yahweh, the assembly of God. They're just the assembly now, but where's God? Well, I think what Matthew is showing us in this lineage is that Jesus has something to do with both the generations from Abraham to David, means he's the son of Abraham, from David to the exile, means he's the son of David, but also from the exile to the present. And at the end of this list, with all these divisions, Abraham, David, exile, what comes at the end? Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the true son of Abraham, the true son of David. And I think what he's telling us is he is the return of God's presence to the Kahal Israel, to the assembled people of God who had been missing the presence of God. And Jesus bears this out in his life and words and actions by demonstrating that he himself is the temple. He demonstrates that he himself is the presence of God. We could uh, go through tons of examples, and maybe we'll do that in a Bible study one of these days, but I'll skip it for now. Just suffice it to say that Matthew is telling us Jesus is the return of the Shekinah glory to Israel. He is now back. Jesus is the final division of this lineage story. And it is a story. It's a grand narrative. Never read through the Bible. It's a big story with a lot of twists and turns. But the thing that ties it all together is this action of God summiting in Jesus Christ, his son. Okay, so, cool, great story. What does this have to do with Joachim, right? That's the feast day that we're celebrating today, and that's the, uh, the story that the church has picked for us to read on this feast of St. Joachim. So, what does this have to do with him? Well, first of all, Joachim is the father of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is the mother of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Implied in today's feast day is the exploration of a little bit of lineage. Okay, we're celebrating the grandfather of Jesus. That's who St. Joachim is. He's Jesus' grandfather by blood. And in picking this um, passage today, I think the church is showing us that she's highlighting for us what St. Matthew is intending by telling this story. He is softly opening the story of Jesus up to those who care about lineage, you know, the, the Jewish people at the time. But what he's also doing is subverting the importance of the lineage. Again, he spares no uh, grisly, you know, details by reminding us of uh, all the, the sin that took place among all these faithful or unfaithful people who ended up still in this brilliant lineage that, that terminates, by the way, in Joseph, not in, in Mary, okay? That's, this lineage is the bloodline of Joseph. And that's important, too. So, because Matthew is undermining the values of this lineage, he's subverting the pride in that biological uh, sonship or, or childship of, of Abraham, the same thing that Jesus does. What is a true son of Abraham after all? Jesus accuses those who are biologically 
related to Abraham as not being true children of Abraham. So who is a true child of Abraham? It's not those who are uh, keeping the law that came later who are true heirs and descendants of the covenant of Abraham. It's those who have the same faith that Abraham did. So it's Joachim's faith and his faithfulness that mattered in his being chosen to be the father of the mother of God. That's what makes him a true um, saint to be held up today. So we have this gospel with 39 begats, right? Shame it's not a nice round, even 40. Wouldn't that have been better? But I think there's a reason for that. Why are there 39 and not 40 begats? It's because the final beginning, God did. He stepped in and broke the lineage He subverted the expectations. Jesus wasn't necessarily a son of David through his direct lineage. He was a son of David according to the promise that he made David, that the throne over Israel and the whole world would have someone sitting on it who would truly deserve it, and that would be his own son. He's a son of Abraham, not through the lineage given in this gospel passage, but because of the faith he has in his father. He is the presence of God himself coming back into the world. Faith is what everything rests on. Faith in God. We have a new interest in lineages in our day with like Ancestry.com and and all the the DNA stuff to find out where your lineage comes from. I'm 13% this and 85% that and blah, blah, blah. But then actually uh, they, they... uh, get better data, and then it turns out you're 25% this, and, and whatever. It's Who can know? The point is, it's, it's not a great place to rest our identity, is it? I think there's this new interest, possibly because we are so uprooted, so much more uprooted than I think we've ever been now in this time and place from our natural familial connections. People just used to know, yeah, I'm, I'm part of this family that's been living in this area for the last, you know, upteen generations, and it's just, you just know who you are and where you're from, your family. But we live in this world now where, you know, families break up, and they lose their own histories, and we don't have a sense of who we are or where we came from, and we're grasping for that, and we're trying to figure out who we are. But we aren't the first in the world to have lost our lineage or to have been uprooted and and taken across the globe as slaves were in the ancient world or as uh, orphans came to be who grew up not knowing their family. I mean, there, there there were infants who were abandoned by their families in ancient Rome because, well, they were just girls and didn't need one of those, need a son, so we'll just put our girl out on the side of the road to die of exposure. As you know, actually, the uh, Christians would would go and and rescue those orphans and and raise them. My point is, in our day and age, it's not new to not have a sense of self, to not know your family, to not know where you come from or where you think you belong. But that hasn't been a problem for the church historically. Why? Again, because we root our identity in Christ Jesus. If we belong to him then our flesh no longer matters. We put our hope in Christ, and we become his brothers and sisters. We become part of his family. 
I think losing faith, losing our, our identity as Christians who belong to Christ and his church uh, has made it harder and harder to establish our identity and, and that's why we have so many identities out there, people looking to, to identify with this group or that, with this special interest thing or that. We have to invent flags to show that we belong to this identity. We have to invent groups and hashtags because I belong to this because I don't know where else to belong. And the church, we belong to Christ. Christ is our identity. In the church, with a life lived full of faithfulness, look how you can be elevated we're not lost anymore. You can, you can end up with your face painted on an icon decked in glory and shining with a golden halo around you, not because you're royalty, but because you lived a life of simple faith and persevered in, from worldly standards, probably very mundane works of charity and love. And if you do that in the church, then you become a, a, a king a prince in the kingdom of heaven and we celebrate you and we give you feast days and we process your icon and we venerate and kiss you, your picture. Because that's what matters. Faith in God and our Father who sees in secret but we rewards openly. That's where our identity comes from and that's why we celebrate St. Joachim today because that man had faith in God. Enough faith that God rewarded him with having the daughter who would give birth to God. And clearly this man in his faith raised her up to value and look for God, raised her to be the kind of woman that made her conform so closely with the son to whom she would give birth that God chose her out of all the people in the world. We celebrated last night her elevation to heaven, the highest honor done to any creature in all of creation, in all of time. Why? Because of her simple Ascent. Be it done to me according to your word. And for that, not that one moment, but for a heart and a life lived of saying yes to God in simple faith, she has been elevated above cherubim and seraphim, above all the creatures. And this man today helped to form her and her character through his faith. So it's a lot to live up to, potentially to hold that kind of a faith and live that kind of a life, but it's also a big reward that we're looking at. Vindication for who we are and belonging in the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.